to the Psych Central podcast, where each episode features guest experts discussing psychology and mental health in everyday, plain language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Psych Central podcast. Calling into the show today, we have Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist who has practiced for 26 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas. She's the author of a new book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm more than delighted to be here. This is a subject I've been passionate about for over five years. So anytime I get to talk about it, I'm delighted. Well, that's wonderful. Now, you have been a therapist, as we established, for well over 25 years. How did you come up with the term perfectly hidden depression? And why just decide to write a book about it? Well, I actually was sitting down to write a blog post one day. I'd been blogging for, I don't know, a couple of years by that time. And I thought about several people that I had seen. And I just sort of thought, well, they perfectly hidden. They, they don't talk about their depression. They're not open about their depression. But if I say, gosh, could you be aware that there's something in the background that you'll tell me a bad story or a painful story and there's a smile on your face, but you're not crying about it. So there was this problem between someone talking about something traumatic and yet not having any kind of painful emotion that was connected with it. I I know that a lot of times people think that depression is supposed to look a certain way. Whenever we see pictures of depression, it's, it's always somebody with their hands on their head or they're crying or dark storm clouds. But that's not really the reality. There's a lot of people who suffer from depression that, upon visual inspection, look perfectly fine. Yes. And, you know, in the literature, that's often called high functioning depression or smiling depression. These are people who really know that they are depressed, that they have even the classic symptoms of depression, like it's hard to get out of bed or they're not as enjoying as many activities that they had in the past or something like that. Or they even know when they get home from the office, here comes this negative energy or with this tendency to want to withdraw. Perfectly hidden depressed people can look like that. They can be aware on one level that they are depressed. The difference is there's also a huge group of them that really don't actually know they're depressed. They have been hiding for so long. They have been pushing away trauma or painful emotions. Maybe they weren't even allowed to talk about pain when they were children. There are all kinds of situations that can foster a perfectly hidden depression. And so this process is so automatic that they're not really sure anymore. They know maybe their gut is telling them something's wrong. This little tiny voice inside of them says, you know, this isn't right. You should be happier. You should be actually more fulfilled. But they try not to listen to that voice because, of course, their major focus is on looking like they have the perfect looking life. I know that when I was depressed, I thought that it was uh, some sort of moral failing. And, you know, my, my parents would say things to me like, well, what do you have to be upset about? Why why aren't you happy? You have more than others. You know, I grew up in the era where we heard about, you know, starving children in other countries all the time when we didn't want to eat dinner. So there was just always this comparison. And that made me as a young adult believe, well, yeah. Since I don't have a reason to be depressed, I must not be depressed. Is that what you're trying to highlight and discuss with you know your, your work, your research, and your book? That's certainly one of the traits. There are 10 commonly shared traits of perfectly hidden depression, Gabe, and one of them 
is an emphasis on counting your blessings to the point where you don't even see that some blessings have vulnerabilities or problems attached to them. For example, I have a successful practice in Fable, Arkansas. I'm very proud of that. I've worked hard for that. I'm very honored by that. But sometimes I get tired. (laughs) And we all have, maybe you're a great beauty or you're wealthy and you wonder, gosh, are people attracted to me because I'm beautiful or because I'm wealthy? Let's say someone has four children and they love having a big family. But then when it comes down to parting children to four different things or or having four different sets of homework, or just buying clothes for four kids, there are some hardships that come along with blessings. And when you are trying to, well, what you said was you were you were told as a child, you don't have anything to complain about. Then you were told, don't talk about vulnerability, don't talk about pain, it's unseemly, you're not being grateful. And I think that that sets up this dynamic where you you shame yourself for not being grateful enough. Perfectly hidden depressed people, even perfectionists in general, that perfectionism is often fueled by shame where you, you do, you have to do your very best because if you don't, there are all kinds of shameful consequences for that and you are completely self-critical and not counting your blessings is one of those self-criticisms. Has research demonstrated a relationship between perfectionism and depression? Yes. Perfectionism actually started being written about, I don't want to go into too much history, but (laughs) back in the 1930s, it began getting some attention as a psychological problem. And there are some researchers now that are actually finding some correlation and a strong correlation between perfectionism and suicide. When I was thinking about some of my own patients, I'm thinking, okay, what are the threads that might define or identify these people? What are the things that they spend a lot of time thinking about or doing? And I came up with 10 of them. Some I've already mentioned, like being highly perfectionistic with a lot of shame, having an excessive sense of responsibility. These are people who have their hands up in the air all the time. Uh, They stay in their head. They tend to be very rational people. They detach from pain by being analytical. They worry a lot, and they need a lot of control over themselves and their environment. They intensely focus on tasks because what they do is how they feel valuable. This is the kind of person that if they go to a party and they're not given a role to do, they're very uncomfortable. They really don't know. So they'll start picking up plates. They'll assign themselves some role because that's where they're most comfortable. Again, I've said this already, they don't allow people into their own inner world, but they really sincerely focus on the well-being of others. They mean it. It's not made up. It's not fake. They discount personal hurt or sorrow, and they have hardly any self-compassion. They believe strongly in counting your blessings. We often talk about that. They actually may enjoy success professionally, in fact, but they don't know how to be emotionally intimate in their relationships. So their relationships are often very troubled. And the last one is something a little different. A lot of times these folks will show up in your office or just in life with a panic disorder or an eating disorder, an obsessive compulsive disorder, or an addiction. And when you think about that, The thread of all those disorders is the fact that they're all about control. So they may have some accompanying 
diagnostically accurate mental health issues. And those are important to address, but the important fact about them for me with perfectly hidden depression is the fact that those diagnoses reflect a problem with control. Is there a way that a person can recognize this in themselves? If I'm somebody listening and I'm, I'm listening to what you said, are, are there some cues or questions that I can ask myself so that I know if I'm falling under this? That's a great question, Gabe. You know, it, one of the people said to me, in fact, many people said to me, when I saw the term perfectly hidden depression, I knew you had figured something out about me. Yes, I'm perfect looking, but yes, I have known something was wrong for a long time, and I am lonely, and I'm despairing. No one knows me, and I have these thoughts of hurting myself that I don't share with anybody. I mean, I think you can recognize yourself in those 10 commonly shared traits. Probably the only one I hope that got confusing a little bit was the one talking about the other diagnoses that could accompany it. But I think even if you're one of that huge group that I talked about a few minutes ago, that really this has become so automatic or unconscious that they don't quite realize what they're doing. They would never tell you that they were depressed. However, what the people I interviewed told me is what they are very clear about is that they're getting lonelier and lonelier. It's getting harder and harder to maintain that mask. You're feeling more and more pressured at work or at church or wherever you put your energies because once you accomplish something, you have this sense of now that's my, I have to top that. And then the next one is I have to top that and I have to top that. The pressure is incredible. We know on a gut level and they know on a gut level, if it's them or you know it, if it's you that something is amiss. And when you go back to your childhood and you think, how could I have learned this? You'd figure out, well, I was screamed at because I was told I wouldn't be no good. And so I decided to look perfect all the time. Or I took care of everybody in my family because my dad was an alcoholic and I never got to talk about anything bad for me. So, you know, guess what? I'm living my life as an adult that way. Or you were the star of your family where your mother or your dad or both said, gosh, you're so talented. We don't have to worry about you. You are, you are great. You're so successful. And so you took it on like, oh, this is the way I get attention. I have to be this in order to be loved. And these are examples of all the things that causes somebody to want to look perfect or appear perfect or be perfect? Yes, exactly. There are several different causes. There are many roads to Rome. <laughs> do you know that thing? Um, there are many ways to, or paths that lead you to creating this. Sexual abuse, neglect, just bad parenting. And especially growing up in families where if you were crying or sad or angry or just wanted to voice your own opinion, that was not allowed. You adopted this drive, this strategy, for lack of a better word, I think it's a good word, in fact, this strategy to, I just can't let anybody in to my own vulnerabilities. It's not allowed. I'm, I'm shamed for it. So then you shame yourself for it. Many of us have a childhood strategy that we came up with given the family we were born into. And that strategy helped us survive that family. Maybe you were smothered and you learned 
you know, I've got to sometimes be more independent because I will get smothered if I don't. We all have different ways we handled our parents' vulnerabilities. What happens as an adult is often that strategy is no longer working, but we're still using it. (laughs) And so perfectionists may have learned in their childhoods that they needed to create a perfect-looking life in order to handle whatever was going on in the family. But then you come into your adult life, and looking perfect is something you're still doing, but it's gradually going to erode and sabotage your own joy and fulfillment in life. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. And we're back with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. So what can somebody do if they identify with perfectly hidden depression? Is, is there an end? Can they get better? What's the solution? You know, I thought this book was, I was going to describe something. And I sent my book proposal in to all the publishing houses, and that's what it was. New Harbinger got back to me and said, no, 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 no. <laughs> if you want to describe it, fine. You need to do that. But you also need a treatment strategy. Wow. And so <laughs> you put it out there. Oh, goodness. And so um, what I did was I came up with a model that I use with almost every patient. They don't have to be perfectionistic. It's a general model of what I do with therapy. And the model is you have to be conscious. It's consciousness is the first stage. You have to be committed. So consciousness, commitment, And with perfectionists, there are a lot of hurdles to commitment, a lot of them. Then you have to confront beliefs that you learned in childhood. This is really sort of cognitive behavioral work where you go back and you look at what you learned you should, ought, must, have to, always do. And you begin to question those beliefs. Some of them are great, but which ones are causing a problem? And you look back on all that with and objectivize as much as you can, and then begin to think, what, what beliefs do I want to live through? What beliefs do I want to live by now? The fourth stage is connection, and this is one of the toughest for perfectionists because we're going to go back and do a trauma timeline about their childhoods. What that means is you go back at year one, two, three, seven, nine, eleven, whatever years you think are important, and you, you talk about the positive things that happened, but you also let yourself write down the painful things that happened. And as you do that, you want to go back with self-compassion. What would you do with anybody else? Now, of course, all of that is about really rediscovering or discovering a new way of being for you. The last part is the part that's about change, changing your behavior. If I've learned one thing, Gabe, as a therapist, I've learned you get a lot of insight. Insight's wonderful. Insight is great. Insight helps you see things. It helps put the puzzle pieces together. But where you get your hope is in behavior change. What's it like to act on these new beliefs? What's it like to confront something that's 
you're sabotaging yourself with? What's it like to feel emotions that you have suppressed for so long? It's probably pretty frightening, actually. And so you want to start putting those things into your own life and into your behavior. And that's where you're going to get your hope. I'm fascinated by this idea that something that individuals did not know was a problem is able to change their life in such a dramatic fashion. What kind of feedback are you getting from people who have utilized these methods? How are their lives improving by embracing this? It's a great question. I will tell you, and I promise you I'm not being dramatic. Just this year, I've had two people have said to me, I wouldn't be alive right now if I had not done this work. But they actually were so miserable that they had those thoughts and they were so afraid they were going to act on them that that's why they came into my practice. So I don't think that's true of everybody. But what I have heard is that, for example, one woman came, young woman came into my office and she, she said, there's something about that term, perfectly hidden depression, that I'm drawn to and I'm not sure why. Well, come to find out, there was a lot of trauma in her lifetime that she had never talked about with anybody. Didn't even see it as trauma. When I used the trauma, she started laughing. Oh, that's not traumatic. And her father had uh, hit her so violently when she was a young child that she had to have surgeries on her face. Oh, wow. She didn't consider that traumatic. So you're trying to wake people up to the idea that what they have considered, well, that was just my life, or again, they have discounted it, of what their reaction would be to someone else telling them that had happened in their lives. They would be horrified. And so you're inviting people to get in touch with feelings. Another example, and this is going to be about sexual abuse, so please listen carefully if you have any history of that. But a woman came in who had had a college sexual relationship, a boyfriend that she had been with him for years, and he'd been sexually abusive to her. When she first brought it up, she said, you know, maybe this is important, maybe it's not, but, you know, I should probably tell you about this relationship in college. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, it was very important in the way she was living her present life. So often these people are just wanting you to confirm, was this trauma? Was this more difficult than I thought? It's obviously interesting to think about what we see as trauma in other people versus what we think about as traumatizing for ourselves. The examples that you used, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, that, that's absolutely traumatic. But maybe you don't recognize that in yourself. Is this what you're noticing? And could there be perfectly hidden trauma? I mean, does all of this sort of go hand in hand? <laughs> that's that's an interesting kind of thought, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think we are in a culture often that tells us to buck up. Don't call it a problem. You know, you're whining. Uh, quit it. It's selfish to think about that. In fact, I, this is one of the funniest, not funny, but ironic examples. Years ago, you know, I have seven or eight patients a day typically. And sometimes I run real tight between sessions. And one person had gone, and the other person who came in, I don't know, a minute after her, sat exactly where she had sat on the sofa. So she could feel the warmth, the the body warmth from the sofa that was still holding that warmth from the other person. And she looked at me, and she said, you know, all of a sudden I got this feeling that I bet that person's problems are a lot more important than mine. I feel silly being here. 
And I looked at her and I said, so you felt warmth on the sofa and somehow you jumped to the idea and the belief that you're not important. Why you're here isn't important. Help me understand that. It's amazing to me how many people have things in their life that they have very courageously gotten through. And I admire their courage. I admire their resilience. It is when resilience is on steroids that I have the problem. Don't sweat the small stuff. Okay, fine. Don't sweat the small stuff, but sweat the big stuff and call it big. Brene Brown, of course, has written incredibly and presented incredibly about shame and vulnerability, one of her tenets, that you can only get to courage through vulnerability. She said a man stood up in the audience because people were kind of going, yeah, well, you know, maybe, but courage is courage. Courage is a lack of fear. And the soldier got up. He had had three stints in Iraq. He'd been shot at. I mean, he'd seen people die. And he looked at her and said, you are so right. I was afraid over there, and I had to recognize that fear and that vulnerability before I could get to my courage. Rudy Giuliani said it after 9-11, and I'm not going to say it as eloquently as he did, but he said something like, I thought I knew the definition of courage before 9-11, and that was the absence of fear. I found out that I'm wrong, that courage is feeling your fear, and going forward. Recognizing vulnerability, admitting vulnerability, revealing vulnerability, and that way you can work your way toward true courage. Dr. Rutherford, I completely agree, and I've learned a lot, and we're, of course, getting to the end of our show. Obviously, we can find the book on Amazon. What is your website? I know that you write for psychcentral.com, so obviously you can check out Dr. Margaret Rutherford there. Where can folks find you if they want to learn more? Sure. My website has the creative name of DrMargaretRutherford.com. I love it. (laughs) And I've been blogging there for seven years. I do have a tag. You know, if you click on the tag, it will take you to all my posts on Perfectly Hidden Depression. I also have a podcast that I've been doing for three years now. It's called Self Work with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And that's on iTunes, on Stitcher, SoundCloud. It's now on Spotify and iHeartRadio. So I really love the podcast. I can go more in depth with topics on the podcast than I can through blog posts. You know, I can spend 20 to 25 minutes talking about something where, you know, a blog post maybe has maybe a thousand words. I'm a, I've got a Facebook page. I mean, I'm on Instagram, Pinterest. It's all under Dr. Margaret Rutherford, or Pinterest is Dr. Slash Margaret, I think. I would love to have your listeners join me. The book does come out November the 1st. I'm thrilled that New Harbinger is publishing it. It is a much better book because they were involved because I've never written anything. I never thought I would write anything. And they have made it really, I think, very readable book. I include lots of stories of these people I interviewed as well as my own patients, of course, anonymously. So I hope you'll join me there. Thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. My, my final question before we hop on out of here is, did you have personal reasons for writing this book? Yes, I did. I wouldn't call myself ever perfectly hidden and depressed, but certainly my mother was. She ended taking anxiety medications in her 30s that developed into a prescription drug addiction and, and actually sabotaged a great deal of her life in the last decade or two of her life. But my mother was 
extremely perfectionistic. I can remember the dining room table being set for a party and we could go in there for a week. I remember that party would occur and my mother would ask me, was the food any good? Because she would always look for people who needed her help or her conversation because they might be uncomfortable. She got up at four o'clock in the morning so no one would see her without her makeup and her high heels and hose. I mean, that's maybe being Southern and being a 1950s uh, housewife, but a lot of it was her perfectionism. So I saw how miserable it made her. And I also adopted a good deal of her perfectionistic standards until I became a therapist and I began working my own way through those and realizing that those were actually my mother's vulnerabilities speaking to me. And I no longer wanted to live my life like that. So um, people have said to me, your mother would be so proud of you for talking about yourself on the Internet. And I said, no, my mother would think it was terrible. So I don't want people to live in that same prison that my mother lived in. And I hope that it will be helpful to those who want to get out. Well, thank you so very much for everything that you do for our community. Thank you for everything that you do for psychcentral.com. And thank you for being on today's show. We really, really appreciated having you. Oh, the the thanks is mine and the gratitude is mine, Gabe. Thank you very much for asking me. And everyone have a wonderful day. And if you are hiding, please... If you can get the ebook, if you don't want to buy the real book, it's, there's also an ebook and an audiobook is coming. Very cool. And remember, everybody, if you want to interact with the show on Facebook, all you have to do is go over to psychcentral.com slash FB show. And don't forget to review our show on whatever podcast player you found us on. Do me a favor, tell a friend, share us on social media. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash Central. We'll see everybody next week. You've been listening to the Psych Central podcast. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, psychcentral.com offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email show at psychcentral.com. Thank you for listening, and please share widely. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.